1: i old of sipping, drinking, Arizona, mixtape just around the corner, did a lot in California, can't wait to drop this on you, yeah, they gon' have fun with that, smash like song, good man, my song's gon' break through like a running
0: pad. Hello and welcome to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One. My name is Mark Hamilton, and not joining me today, my friend, my neighbor, my colleague, my frenemy, Mr. Mark Daly, and that's because... He's on vacation, a much-deserved vacation for Mr. Daly. He's been away for about a week or so, and he will be back just in time to join us for next Friday's news show. So he'll be back just in time for us to break down the latest news in the world of Formula 1 and get us ready for spa, which might actually be the last time we go there. For a while, and we'll get to that a little bit later when we have a special guest on to break down some of the news in the world of Formula One. To give everyone a little bit of an update, especially if you are new to this show, my name is Mark Hamilton, as mentioned, and Mr. Daly and I have been doing this show together now for almost two years. That said, Mr. Daly has been doing this show in some capacity full time since. January, February of 2016. So the show will celebrate its seventh anniversary in just a couple of months. And hopefully before the end of the year, we will also celebrate a huge milestone for the show, which is going to be episode number 400, an incredible milestone. This, in fact, is episode three. 63. Again, like I said, if you're new to the show, a little bit of context. We are primarily a news show. The staple show, our bedrock, the backbone of the show is our weekly news show where we do a roundup of all the latest news and topics and a little bit of gossip from the world of Formula One. We like to provide as much insight and context and background as possible. We also, of course, do small mini previews for every single Grand Prix, and we do a very detailed post race analysis after every Grand Prix. And if you've been listening, this year, we do that with Tim Haraney, who, of course, is the full time professional racing analyst from TSN, which is the Canadian equivalent of ESPN, and we get great feedback for that. We also do a couple of other types of shows. We do our interview series where we sit down with guests from around the world of motorsports. This year, of course, we've had such stars as NAS- or NASCAR Balkan, Amber Balkan of the NASCAR series. She was fantastic. That was a great interview. Most recently, we had. Hamda al Kobesi from the United Arab Emirates. We talked about her journey and her time in Formula 4 as well as her time in karting. We've had interviews with W Series star Jessica Hawkins. W Series race winner Megan Gilks. We've had, of course, Matt Clark on from the U.S. F4 Series. We've had a ton of really great guests, and it's all with designs on providing some really great context, but help to fill in around the corners in the world of motorsports because motorsports is much bigger than just Formula One, and there's all kinds of complementary series, competing series, and other disciplines of motorsports out there. So we we just like to provide some really great context and to provide as much information as possible, especially knowing that so many of our listeners are new to the sport. Now, all of that said... I do have a guest. We do have a guest today. Joining us in a few moments is going to be Matt Sakaris of the Sakaris and Price Show based out of Vancouver, British Columbia. They have a full-time five-day-a-week podcast breaking down all the latest news around the world of sports, largely with a Vancouver-specific angle or dimension to it. But of course, Matt, if you know and you've listened to our show for a while, is a huge Formula One fan, has been following the sport for decades, and has some really great insights. We're excited to talk about a couple of interesting topics with him, not least of which is going to be the 2023 calendar that I alluded to a couple of moments ago now all of that said we sit here we are in the summer break you could really say that this is the dog days of the formula one season we're more than halfway through the championship As we do every year, we get this great three- or four-week break. It's something that everyone that travels with the series desperately needs. The factory shut down for two full weeks as part of the sports regulations. All of the mechanics go home, the engineers go home, and the drivers go on vacation. Kind of like at Christmas, there's also a two-week shutdown in the back half of December, but it's all mandated, which means that everyone involved with the sport takes their vacation now but it's also a good opportunity to sit back and reflect a little on the championship and as we sit here right now As you all know, Max Verstappen is leading the championship by a huge margin of 80 points over Charles Leclerc. Max Verstappen looking to cash in on his second straight World Drivers' Championship. He has 258 points to Charles Leclerc's 178 points. Sergio Perez, although he's tailed off a little bit in the last few races, is sitting at 173, followed by George Russell with 158 points, Carlos Sainz with 156 points, and Lewis Hamilton rounding out the top six with 146 points. If we look at the champ, Championship this year, there's a couple of interesting narratives. One, of course, is the fact that all of the teams, to some degree, are wrestling with the changes of the new aerodynamic formula that was introduced for the season. And we've talked about it at length, but the new aerodynamic formula was designed really to help the sport be a little bit more compatible with the new cost cap, taking away some of the design liberties that teams have had historically consolidating designs centralizing designs making certain concepts of the car's development more common and injecting more standardized components into the car itself so the question coming into the season was really how is that going to play out because the promise was look one cost caps going to help drive down the cost of the sport, which will make it more enticing for people to enter in the sport and make it more viable for existing teams to stay in the poor sport. Because of course, historically, we've seen teams join and end as a revolving door. BMW came and left. Toyota came and left. Jaguar came and left. Jaguar, of course, representing the Ford Enterprise, came and left. That's not good for the sport. And ultimately, Liberty, when they took over, worked with the FIA to make sure that they could put a financial superstructure in place and create an infrastructure that would make it enticing for new teams to come and then make it enticing for everybody to stay. So that was one dimension of the new regulations and the cost cap. The other was that, admittedly, racing in Formula One could be better. And by that, I mean it's very difficult for cars to overtake other cars. And that's because historically the aerodynamic design of these cars created a lot of dirty air. So the air coming off the back of these cars created a ton of turbulence. So if you were following that car behind, you were the one that was running into that dirty, dirty air, which hampered your speed, hurt your tire degradation. You want to be in clean air. So one of the concepts of the new aerodynamic formula that we have this year is a lot of the aerodynamic down force is not created by air flowing over the top of the car, but it's created by air flowing Under the car. And the benefit of doing it this way is that there's less wake, less dirty air coming off the back of a car, meaning that if you're following a car in front of you, there's less dirty air to drive into, which gives you more opportunity for passing and overtaking, which in turn should make the sport more exciting and less processional. So, one of the questions coming into this year was is the formula going to work? Are the aerodynamic changes going to be good for the sport? And all of the teams have to some degree, struggled and had to learn to adapt to these new aerodynamic changes. And obviously, we've seen a lot of news about bouncing and porpoising, which are two very different distinct phenomena but as the seasons progress teams that were struggling with those two things or one of those two things is come to find ways to overcome them with new designs new floors etc so that's a good news story but ultimately the question is are we seeing more competitive parity in the championship and are we seeing more overtaking and the ability to overtake present itself more often i think the answer to those questions is maybe and the reason i'm kind of using maybe as a bit of a cop-out here is it's still very early, right? We have to remember that the teams that were competing last year have been running very much the same formula since 2017. So 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, they had five years with that aerodynamic formula, and they had three years preceding that with functionally the same concept. The cars weren't quite as wide, of course, and the aerodynamic formula wasn't quite as aggressive, but for five years prior to now, teams had the ability to hone in and tweak and tweak and tweak their formula. Right now, these teams have been working on these cars for a couple of years and these designs for a couple of years. But of course, all of that work was interrupted and disrupted by COVID. And of course, they're also now trying to adjust to a world where there's a cost cap. So teams can't simply throw a blank check at a problem that they now have to budget. And they have to be very, very, very strategic with how they spend their money and where they spend their money. So teams are adjusting, one, to the new aerodynamic formula, how they design the car. But they're also learning to adjust to a world where they're isn't an unlimited amount of money. And of course, a number of teams on this grid this year, not least of which is because of the inflationary pressures that we've all been experiencing, but most of the teams on the grid this year will run into that cost cap this year, that they will get to a point where they simply have no more money to spend on the car. So I say maybe, and I say maybe because we've absolutely seen signs and flashes throughout the championship this year, indicating that the new aerodynamic formula is working it is getting better the racing is getting better we can certainly Indicate or point to certain moments during the championship where that has been a reality. Obviously, Jeddah was a surprise. We had a great race there. Bahrain was good, and of course, Hungary, which is a track which is historically incredibly processional, with the ex- with the exception of turn one at the end of that long straight, was particularly exciting. So there's some good news there. And the reason I say it's good news is because I think it's going to get better as these teams have more and more experience with these cars and with this aerodynamic formula. They're going to make improvements so next year the passing the overtaking should be even better than this year but i don't want to i don't want to make a sweeping judgment on the success of the new rules and the new formula and the new regulations based on half a championship we need to give this a full year we need to give this two years we need the teams to be able to go back to the drawing boards back to the factories next winter and see what they come to the track with next february march when we get into winter testing in the early part of the championship so i think It's been good. Now, I think the other conversation that we really want to be able to have is about competitive parity and sporting competition, because the cost cap was all about leveling the playing field. That Formula One was a lot like Major League Baseball as a North American analogy, because North America, we have four big team sports at the professional level. We have the National Hockey League. We have the NBA. We have the NFL. All of those have salary caps. At the end of the day, if I am an NHL team, I have a cap. If I'm an NBA team, I have a cap. And if I'm an NFL team, I have a salary cap. And that's as much money as I can spend on my players. Of course, in certain leagues, there's exceptions and there's taxes and all those kind of things. But functionally, it creates some degree of parity between a team in Milwaukee and a team in Atlanta. And we can argue about whether the caps have been successful for the sport or whether they've created competitive parity or not. But if you look at the NBA, let's be very honest, small market, Milwaukee. just won an NBA championship is probably working. In the Major League Baseball, on the other hand, a league where there's never been a salary cap, you could argue that the big clubs, the Los Angeles Dodgers and the New York Yankees, for instance, can simply outspend the rest of the field, and they do. Now, whether that really translates into more World Series championships or not, I think you'd really have to start going through the league year by year to see who's been winning those chips. But ultimately, they do have a competitive advantage simply because they have more cash to spend On players. So, in the world of Formula One, driver salaries don't have a cap. They don't have a cap. Drivers will always go to the team that can offer them the most money and to the team that affords them the best opportunity to win a championship. But again, Formula One is different than a professional team sport because the car is a huge and fundamental piece of the puzzle when it comes to winning a constructor's title or winning a driver's title. So the drivers are important. Make no mistake about it. A championship team does not win a championship without a championship caliber driver, but all of the work that's done with the design team and that's done in the factory and is done in the garage is important the team is important as is the car functionally and the amount of money historically that you've been able to invest in your team typically means you get a better car. So when Liberty came in, they recognized that the sport was fundamentally broken in terms of its economics. Its ability to attract teams, attract sponsors, keep teams, keep fans and create some degree of competitive parity on the track. So Formula 1, Liberty, the FIA, they got together, the teams remarkably with the 2020 Concord agreement and the Concord agreement is ultimately the mechanism that contractually binds all of these parties together into the Formula 1 championship agreed that a cost cap was a good thing. And what was remarkable about this is teams like Ferrari and Mercedes, the teams that historically could afford to spend three or four or $500 million a year on their race operations, signed up for this cost cap. And that's a good thing. So again, I still think it's probably too early to make a decision on whether the cost cap is working. Obviously, a lot of what's working for the teams that are winning championships right now, or the teams that are at least competing for the 2022 championship, is residue, right? Obviously, if you look at Red Bull, they have a world-class driver. If you look at Mercedes, they have a world-class driver. If you look at Ferrari, they have world-class drivers. And a lot of the design and a lot of the functionality of these cars is spillover or concepts that were learned from years past. That as much as these cars are new, there's a lot of inherited and established and institutional knowledge in these teams. So I think it's going to take a little bit of time to determine and recognize whether the cost cap is really, really successful. The other thing that I would point out is that while there is a cost cap, which limits the maximum amount of money the teams can spend on their race operations, there are still some teams that despite the fact that it's only 140 something million dollars and it was bumped up a little bit because of inflationary pressures, there are some, still some teams that will choose not to spend to the cost cap, which I think is going to be a major problem for the sport. So while you've said, hey, Ferrari, Mercedes, Red Bull, you can no longer spend more than say $140 million a year on the development of your car and your race operations. There are still going to be some teams that maybe choose to only spend $80 million a year and Haas obviously being one of them. And I'm a huge critic of the Haas organization because to me, if you're going to be in Formula One and you're going to be one of the 10 teams in the world that gets to contend for a Formula One championship, you need to be doing everything in your power to be successful. And if you can't come up with that extra $50 million a year to fill out the cost cap, you do not deserve to be on the grid because there are other organizations out there that would happily come and compete and spend to the cost cap. So this championship's been interesting. And like I said, Max Verstappen is currently leading it. Red Bull is leading the Constructors title. I would expect Max Verstappen to win the Drivers Championship. I would expect Red Bull to win the Constructors Championship fantastic they've been nearly flawless this year and all the credit to them but i think there'll also be an asterisk next to ferrari this year much like there was an asterisk next to ferrari in 2018 and 2019 because they were in a position to win one or two championships and for a variety of reasons that's simply not going to happen and to flash back to 2018 2018, at least the back half, was very much a calamity of issues, driver error, reliability issues, and strategy issues, which may sound familiar. And of course, 2019, it looked like they were going to be hyper competitive. They had the fastest car in the grid. And then mysteriously, partway through the season, they lost 50 horsepower from their power unit. And it's been largely reported now because they were caught cheating. And you may never know the truth, but it's pretty well established that that was the case. They had their wrist slapped and they spent a few years digging through the trenches of Formula One to rebuild that power unit and be competitive once again. And this year they have arguably the best car in the championship, but simply having the best car isn't enough. Your drivers have to be nearly flawless. Your strategy team needs to be flawless. Your garage needs to be flawless. Everything has to go right. So Formula One in so many ways is absolutely a team Sport. Now, a couple of updates that I did want to share before we got into our interview, our session with Matt Sakaris, is I owe everybody a fantasy league update. And I haven't done this in a little while, so it's probably worth doing one. First of all, I wanted to thank everybody for joining. We were absolutely blown away by the number of people that joined our fantasy super league this year. 2,030 people joined the Scuderia F1 slash Vincenzo Landino Podcast Super League. And we are incredibly, incredibly blessed to have such a great community of listeners that we could fill out the pool. And of course, we are gonna have prizes for the top three finishers, which will hopefully finalize soon. I know I've thrown out some ideas, some merch, race weekend subscriptions, some other things, but I promise the top three winners will absolutely receive a gift and we'll send that to you wherever you are in the world. Now, if we take Take a look at the top 10 right now. Andrew T is leading with 2,683 points. Number two is Adam J with 2,609 points. Whitman R from the UK with 2,563 points. That is F with 2,549 points. Ludwig Y, 2,535 points. Noah F with 2,527 points. Marshall W with 2,526 points. Roman M, Number eight with 2,522 points, Jesse H from Canada, 2,512 points. And then rounding out the top 10, Byron H with 2,509 points. And if you are curious about where I am sitting, I am currently sitting at position number 500. So I am terrible, but I'm never going to give up. And nor should Ferrari that while the championship seems to re-wrapped up, mathematically, it's not over yeah now a couple of other quick updates earlier this week we dropped a really exciting podcast with Hamda Alcobesi I was very excited about that she was an incredible interview and it was tons of fun to listen to her journey and to her tell her story that was great so please make sure you check it out last week we also joined or dropped the first ever episode of F1 Book Club with Bird Pinkerton that episode was tons of fun we broke into Elvis Priestley Mark Elvis Priestley's book The Mechanic some really juicy stuff in there I recommend you both buy the book on Amazon and wherever you get your books and also listen to that podcast maybe let's read the book first and then download the podcast and give it a listen probably a great way to to experience it uh, this weekend I'm going to be joined with by Adam Burns from the DNF F1 podcast in the UK he's going to help me do a new show on Saturday which will probably drop on Sunday or maybe Monday we need to do we owe you a really great roundup of the news next week we also with F1 Techie my good friend from Lebanon we are going to do a special podcast to break down the 2026 power unit. Now that the 2026 power unit has been set in stone and because it's set in stone, we also expect to hear formal announcements from both Audi and Porsche on when and how they are going to join the Formula One grid for 2026. And then of course, next Friday, Like I said, Mr. Mark Daly is going to be back from vacation. We'll get back to the show and we'll do our weekly new show roundup and our preview of the Spa Grand Prix. Finally, and I promise this will be the final finally, before we go to a break and bring on Matt Sakaris, a couple of other quick updates. We are still aiming to bring on Mr. Kevin Clark of The Ringer. He, of course, is the host of the F1 show. How he was able to convince Bill Simmons to do an F1 show for The Ringer, I'll never know, but I can't wait to hear that story as well as hear his story about being an Orlando Magic fan and covered the NFL for many, many years. We're also going to be doing a very special interview series episode with Megan Schuster, also of The Ringer. She does a ton of sports and pop culture work for that network and also supports the ringer f1 show by joining kevin from time to time and also hosting his absence so very very excited about that now we'll finally take a break pay some of those proverbial bills but when we get back we're going to be joined by mr matt Sakaris of the Sakaris and price show to talk about some of the uh the bigger topics in the world of formula one see you on the flip side
1: passion drive and patience
0: Hello and welcome back to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One. You know, I feel like Mr. JT the Human, you have been such a great sport and have been letting us tap into your catalog of music all season. Here's some royalty change because we appreciate the fact that you've let us showcase your great talent on our show and provide some really great intro and outro music. Now, all of that aside, joining us now, as I teased before the break, the one, the only, Mr. Matt Sikaris. Matt, welcome to the podcast. It has been forever.
2: Hey, buddy, Thank- Thank you for inviting me back. Of course, no one could fill Mark Daly's chair, but I will do my my utmost to have a good Formula One discussion with you over the next 45 minutes or so, Mark. Thanks for inviting me back. Appreciate it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And first of all, it has been probably too long. We had you on a bunch of times last year. We had some really great conversations about the championship last year. I think we've added... Tons of new listeners since last year. Maybe just take a moment to give everyone a little bit of an introduction on into who you are and, and your background in sports media.
2: Well, I've worked as a sports reporter for more than 20 years now, uh, first in newspapers, then in talk radio, and uh, for the last 18 months in podcasting uh, at and Price, where myself and my partner, Blake Price, do a daily podcast that you can listen to. Now, it's on Vancouver Sports, BC Sports. We're very much a regional podcast covering hockey and all the happening sports wise in Vancouver, British Columbia, uh, Canada. But one of my passions is formula one. And it was a couple of years ago where I stumbled upon this <laughs> one podcast and it looked like they were kind of local. And then I discovered, wait a second, it's done by two local guys and they're really, really good. And that's, that's where our relationship started. And uh, I've been the richer for it, buddy. Uh, because you two are two of the smartest guys talking about the sport on our side of the hemisphere. And uh, boy, with Drive to Survive being as popular as, as it is, it is amazing to be able to have the conversation with a wider, broader cross section. I mean, like, we were not an F1 town, Mark. <laughs> no, like, not well, I almost never talked about it on my radio show. And then, you know, I mentioned I was a fan drive to survive came around. And then all of a sudden the audience would start messaging me things on formula one. Like we do listener feedback segments and, you know, lo and behold, like Ferrari or Lewis or something like that would start featuring in some of the audience feedback. So, uh, it's been an amazing rise for the sport here in North America. And I'm just delighted uh, that we
0: got more people on the bandwagon, more fans. You know, Matt, I I couldn't agree with you more. And I think what we've discovered, not amongst our community at all, but what we've discovered amongst some Formula One fans, especially the those that have been around for a while, they've really gatekeeped Formula One. They've really been gatekeepers that you can only be a Formula One fan if, and you have to conform to a certain standard. And our perspective has been, the more the merrier. So I'm super happy to hear the same from you that you know you and I previously prior to the last couple of years could go weeks or months without having the opportunity to talk about Formula One. And now when you have a coworker, and in my case, you know I do a lot of Zoom meetings, a lot of Teams meetings, people join on that I barely know, but they want to talk Formula One. They'll see something in the background like, did you see Charles Leclerc? And never in in a million years, did I imagine that that would be the world that we live in? In Vancouver, we are a five-hour flight away from the nearest Formula One race. Like we are nowhere near a Formula One Grand Prix, <laughs> if you know what I mean. Well, wait, now Vegas, baby. Uh, we're we're only two and a half three hours away, and we're definitely <laughs> going to talk about Vegas. Vegas.
2: You're, you're so right, Mark. Like I can remember when the sport years ago was on like NBC and, you know, you would have Peter Windsor there saying, oh, the sport's not boring. You know, uh, uh, what do you mean you want more overtaking on track and things like that? You know? So, um, no, I, I, I'm, I'm not a gatekeeper in the least. I'm a more of the merrier. I may have a little bit of an issue with the schedule and we'll get to that here in a second. Uh, But, you know, like I'm in a, I'm in an F1 pool that, you know, I think started at like 16, 17 people a number of years ago, and now we're upwards of 30 people. So, you know, the growth has been tremendous. And really this, as we've talked about before, my friend, this is the final frontier, right? Like North America and particularly the United States we're the final frontier for this sport. It was pretty much popular in every other corner of the globe. And it's uh, it's been amazing to see it take off here in
0: Canada and the U.S. A lot of people in the US that are new to Formula One or have followed it for a while have seen the explosive growth in that country. But what they don't realize is that this is largely what Formula One has been throughout the rest of the globe for for decades, that what they're experiencing is exactly what you said, which is the final frontier. And obviously, we've seen renewed growth or renewed interest in the last part, couple of years, partly because of Drive to Survive and partly because of the pandemic that so many races were happening behind closed doors but it's been it's been exciting nonetheless and I think the other thing that's really interesting is that People are finding ways to be Formula One fans in in new ways. It's not all about, I have to be sitting in front of my TV on Friday morning at 5 a.m. to watch Free Practice One. It's okay if you just watch qualifying or the race, or it's okay if you just watch the race. And a lot of people, half the fun they have following F1 is, what are the drivers doing during the summer break on social media? There's just so many different things to talk about when it comes to the Formula One Championship, but I did want to get Not right into had it. You never
2: miss free practice one though, right, Mark? <laughs> my
0: friend, Don't I tell didn't... me you've missed free practice one. There there may be a 55-inch TV in my office for a reason, and it's free practice one and two on Fridays. But I do want to jump right into right into the topics because You and I have been bantering back and forth via text message and social media for months about the calendar. And as the sport has seen this explosive and renewed interest in in its product, um, we've seen a desire to see more races materialize in the United States. And of course, that manifested itself earlier this year. In May, we went to Miami for the first time. And while there was a lot of critics of the cost of the event, I think that's just by and by and large, a byproduct of the fact that there was interest in it. Um, There was a race in Miami, but we also have a race coming next year in Vegas, which you mentioned a couple minutes ago. But next year, we're also expected to, and there hasn't been a formal announcement yet, we're expected to go Kailami in South Africa. So the first time we'll be back in the African content since the early 90s. We should be back in China, which is an incredibly important market for Formula One for the first time since 2019. And Qatar will be on the calendar for the first time, full-time time of course it was on the calendar once briefly in 2020 to help fill out that schedule during the pandemic shortened year or sorry 2021 to fill out the uh the pandemic interrupted year but all of that said and i'm going to pass it over to you there's potentially two races that we're going to lose right
2: let me steal a line from esteban Ocon. it's not big prize racing it's grand prix racing right (laughs) like France is to this sport, what Bethlehem is to mangers. So look, I can't say I was the biggest Manicour fan. I did actually like Paul Ricard. You know, as the newer tracks go, I actually thought Paul Ricard uh, gave us some decent races over the years, but I'm flabbergasted that the sport next year will not only not have a French race, it won't have a German race. And we're pulling out a spa in Belgium, which for my money is the best racetrack in the world. Um, let's just go back a second and I'm glad we started as we started Mark. And so everyone knows that I'm a come one, come all formula one fan, but I do wonder if the sport right now is chasing some of those American dollars, chasing some of those drive to survive dollars and fans, <coughs> perhaps at the expense of of their base and of their core. Um, I always viewed the power structures of this sport being in the economic backbone of this sport being in principally four countries. Uh, well, four countries, Great Britain, France, Germany, and Italy. Um, to think that we're not going to be racing in France and Germany, like Mark, I'm old enough to remember when we went both to Hockenheim and the Nürburgring in Germany. Like, look at some of the most successful people in the history of this sport. You know, a good number of them are German and French. The Professor, LA Prost, Michael Schumacher, and others. And, you know, last time I checked, Renault was a proudly French company. Mercedes was a proudly German company. And we got Audi, Porsche coming on in as well. Like, what are all these stakeholders in France and Germany going to think about a sport that no longer touches their country, no longer does one of it, one of its events in their country. You know, to me, that's one big discussion in and of its own right, but that we're not going to spa. Um, as you know, Mark, like I think it's the best racetrack in the world, I think if you went up and down the paddock, you would get drivers saying it's the best racetrack in the world. And if they were to come on out and say, look. I'm not, we're not going to spa anymore because Eau Rouge is just too dangerous as a corner now for a modern F1 car. Then, you know, I can understand that. I believe we had that conversation on the pod a couple of years ago after the passing of uh, Antoine Hubert uh, at that corner. It may just be that, a, you know, a, a full speed blind right hander up the hill. Because, you know, if somebody has trouble up there, it usually collects several other cars and it usually collects several other cars at speed. Um, but yeah, I will certainly be watching spa here in a few weeks, uh, with a tear in my eye and a fair bit of nostalgia, because to me, that is one of the grace, great race circuits the world over. And I, and I'm quite disappointed that formula one won't be there next. Yeah, I
0: agree. And if you look at the grid right now, we'll, Go, we'll actually go through this list in uh, the order of the current constructors championship, but we have Red Bull, which is an Austrian-based company. And of course, we have a race in Austria. Now, that said, it's largely because of Red Bull, because they bought, redeveloped the circuit, and they pay the hosting fees to have the race there. We have Ferrari, which is, of course, an Italian team. We have two races in Italy locked into the calendar for the next couple of years in Imola and Monza. We have Mercedes, which is technically a German company, but a British team. But of course, they represent Germany, and they race under a... German flag, no race in Germany. Alpine, Renault, like you said, a fiercely proud French company. We're not going to have a race in France. We have McLaren, which of course is a British team, Alfa Romeo, Swiss team, Haas, which is this weird hybrid British American uh, Italian team, Alfa Tauri, Aston Martin, a British team, and of course Williams, a, a, a British team. But like you mentioned, we are on the verge now, now that the 2026 20, power unit regulations have been confirmed, we fully expect. Audi and Porsche to announce their entry into the sport imminently, maybe next week, maybe the week after. And then all of a sudden you have Mercedes, Audi and Porsche on the grid and not a single race in, in,
2: in Germany. And, and think of it, um, beyond that, Mark, I mean, there's still a bunch of good German drivers and, you know, it seems like there's a factory there that produces good German drivers, but, um, you know, Well, no, but I just I go back to uh, Pierre Gasly a couple of years ago uh, at Monza, if I'm not mistaken, and the great call from the French play by play guy. We, oui, Monsieur, we oui, Madame, we finally have a French winner uh, uh, driver winner sin- the first since uh, since the Monaco Grand Prix all those years ago in Olivier Panis. So you know, since then we've seen Esteban Ocon uh, win as well. So. Boy, I mean, it's just a huge, huge sport in those countries. And I just, I'm having problem as an old one, old F1 head processing a world where we're going to Miami, Austin and Las Vegas and not going to France or to Germany at all. Frank, you know, frankly, it it seems to me a little bit gluttonous to go to three different markets in the United States. Like, I don't know why you need Las Vegas and Miami. I understand the economics of it that you know those are towns uh that can command huge dollars and wealthy people to come there and, and, and spend on a motor race. I just you know for me as a cons you know particularly as a, a consumer um you know one or the other would be okay right like if it was a rotational thing we're in Miami once every two years in Las Vegas once every two years I think you know that would be okay Austin always sort of struck me as off-brand for formula one like it's to, you know, like when they put them in the cowboy hats mark uh like put them in the cowboy hats for all the promotional stuff it always seemed a little bit off-brand for me to be down there in the heart of Texas and Austin even though Austin's a very cool and funky town so yeah look um you know as, as someone who may get to one of these races as a live spectator fantastic as somebody sitting at home watching um yeah I I'm uh, I'm so surprised that we are where we are with the calendar
0: and I I don't take exception to being in Vegas and I don't take exception to Miami but I think the risk and, and you made you you alluded to this I think the risk is you can't go to these markets at the expense of the hinterland that is the sport that at the end of the day the economic engine, and again, everyone's excited that we're getting a million people watching a Formula One race in the US. By the way, that is nothing compared to college football, compared to college basketball, the NBA, that those numbers are nothing. They're getting better. And there's reason to be excited. But the economic engine of this sport is the UK, it's France, it's Germany, it's Italy. Like those are the economic engines and to not be in France and to not be in Germany is is hugely problematic. Yeah, no,
2: I, I wonder how long that's going to go. Uh, you know, it, it seems to me that, um, you know, the governors of Formula One here have fallen in love with their new audience. I mean, rightfully so. It's been an astonishing, it has been an astonishing um, process of customer acquisition from Formula One uh, via the Drive to Survive series. And, and, and as we said, you know, the growth potential of North America and particularly the United States is where I would be fixated as well as a... As a business person, I just sort of wonder how's your base going to react if you go years and years without a race in France, without a race in Germany, without a race in Spa, which, you know, for the true track aficionados, I think will be a big loss. Uh, I know Daly isn't here, so I can say this freely, but I'm a big Monaco fan. I know there are many, Daly included, who want to get rid of Monaco. Um, so, you know, as somebody who has loved this sport for years, I, you know, I I sort of find myself longing a little bit for the history of it, uh, as we move seemingly at warp speed at you know, at DRS speed, uh, into a new calendar that has all these new races and all these new places, uh, at the expense of some of the tradition of the sport.
0: I think it's probably useful as well to provide a little bit of context to how race locations are determined. So with the exception of Vegas, which is effectively unique because the race organizer, the race promoter is effectively Formula One itself, all of the other races are hosted and promoted by independent companies. So they're companies that come to Formula One and say, hey, here's our proposal. We want to host a Grand Prix here. Here's how security is going to work. Here's how parking is going to work. Here's how transit's going to work. Here's the circuit that we're going to use as FIA grade one. And then if Formula One likes what they're hearing, not the FIA, Formula One will negotiate with that promoter. And ultimately, they'll strike a deal that, hey, for five years, we're going to race in Matt Sikaris backyard in Kitsilano. We're going to go there and host a Grand Prix. The challenge though I think that we've seen over the last couple of years is we have places like France who spends 22 million dollars a year. So it's reported that the race organizers in France are spending 22 million dollars a year. Silverstone pays 25, Austria pays 25, Belgium pays reportedly under 20. Italy so the Monza Grand Prix spends 25, but if you look at some of these other races, Bahrain reportedly spends 50 million dollars a year, Jeddah spends close to 60. Azerbaijan spends close to 60, and if you go down to Abu Dhabi, it's reported that they're close to $60 million a year. So all of a sudden, you have these newer, less traditional circuits spending big money, and then you have Miami, and you have... Las Vegas that come onto the scene and they say, hey, look, I'll give you $50 million a year to host a Grand Prix. And F1, all of a sudden's like, well, we've only got space for 24 races on the Grand Prix. Somebody's got to go because we're responsible to our shareholders that we have to deliver value. And one of the three ways that we generate revenue is one through sanctioning fees, one through sponsorship, and one through TV. So if we can eke out an extra $20 million per event by shifting a race from Spa to Vegas, we're going to, we're going to do that. But to your point, is it good for the sport long well, term? Well,
2: and, and, you know, here's the other thing, you know, uh, for the television viewer, not many of us draw distinctions between the tracks, right? Like there isn't a huge distinction for a lot of the television audience between a spa or a Bahrain or a Miami. And in fact, you might be able to argue, and I've certainly argued in the past, one of, to me, one of the appeals of Monaco is the backdrop. You can almost argue that if you dress it up, you know, dress the set, if you will, glitter, glitter up the background that your backdrop may, um, may play into the, into the eyes and tastes of television viewers as much as the actual track configuration itself. And yeah, no, I completely understand the economics and, and why they're going there. I just, you know, I find it a little bit sad that some of the, um, died in the wool countries and some of the best racetracks going, are no longer being used by Formula
0: One. So, and this will sound a little bit boring. It'll probably make for bad podcasting, but currently there are 22 races locked in stone for next year. And the maximum allowable number of races is 24. So I alluded to before the break, I talked a little bit about the Concord Agreement. The Concord Agreement is the contractual arrangement that ties the teams, the FIA and Formula One together to create a championship. And when they renegotiated it and signed the new Concord Agreement in 2020, All parties agreed that a calendar can feature up to... 24 races. So when I hear people like, oh, it's so hard on a mechanic, 24 races, it's hard on a driver, 24 races, like the teams agreed to this. Like this is what ultimately they agree to. So we have 22 races set in stone next year. Now, what's not on that race or not on that list is obviously Spa, which you spoke to. What is not on that list is the French Grand Prix. But what is also not on that list is two races that we expect to be back. One is China, which we expect to be back next year for the first time since 2019. And also expected to be on there is Kyalami South Africa for the first time since the early 90s. That's your 24 races. France is gone. Spa is gone, which is just terrible.
2: Yeah. And, um, look, uh, I'm interested to see China again, as if I'm not mistaken, it has produced some pretty good races in the past. Uh, quite interested to see this track in South Africa. I mean, you mentioned the early nineties, Mark, I don't even remember, uh, a Grand Prix in, in South Africa. So, you know, that's new and exciting. Although I must say, I was very excited for the Dutch Grand Prix last year that we were going, that the sport was going back to a circuit that I don't even remember or didn't, you know, wasn't in my memory banks. I was young and so young the last time that they were there. Um, frankly, I didn't like the track much. I thought the race in the event itself was fantastic. All the orange and, you know, surely Max Verstappen at this stage of the game probably deserves a home race for everything, you know, that he's done in the sport. But I didn't find the track all that fascinating. So I'm interested to see track configuration and how it works out in Vegas, in South Africa, in some of the newer places we're going. And hey, if it produces fast, thrilling races with overtaking on track, then so be it. I mean, I'll watch a race in Antarctica. Uh, if it's a good hour and a half, two hours well spent uh, of guys pushing the limits in the race car.
0: Yeah. And just to be clear for everyone at home, I think Matt and I are clear that we are all for going to new locations and experiencing new tracks. I think the one, the one hesitation that we have is the backbone of the sport for its entire history has been a block of countries in Western Europe. And, and obviously Germany is the backbone of the championship from a, From a manufacturer, a constructor's perspective, the UK is a big part, and France is a big part. And not to be racing in France and Germany is just, it's problematic because the question is, what does that do to that base of fans over time?
2: Yeah, and there's so many more new fans, Mark. The one thing that it might do, although it certainly didn't do it this year, you know, I'm someone who has been to the Canadian Grand Prix in Montreal a number of times. Used to always, of course, encounter Americans who came up in droves before they had a race. Or in between when they had a race after Indianapolis and before Austin, or even in companionship. You know, they'd come up and they do Montreal in June and then they'd go down and do Austin in September, October, whenever uh, it is. Hey, if all the Americans can stay home and go to their three races and tickets are more readily available, <laughs> Montreal, then I'm all in, buddy. Because boy, did that race sell out fast this year. And I found myself on the outside looking in. I said, you know what? Looking at my wallet, looking at my balance sheet, maybe 2023 for me to get back to the Canadian Grand
0: Prix. I never thought about it like that. And people talk to me all the time. It's like, oh, what do you think of the Canadian Grand Prix? I'm like, it's one of the ones I've never been to. And they're like, what do you mean? I'm like, it's cheaper for me to fly from Vancouver Past Montreal to Europe and go to a Grand Prix there than it is to go to Montreal. And Montreal, of course, benefits because of its geography that people from New York State and Massachusetts and Vermont and Connecticut, they all, it's within driving distance. They drive right into the city and it's a huge party. And it's kind of been the East Coast Grand Prix in the way that Austin is becoming the Southern and West Coast Grand Prix. Although, of course, now you're going to have in its backyard, you're going to have Vegas. Yeah.
2: Well, and of course, the other great thing about Montreal and why it was so popular with American fans of F1, but, you know, fans at large in F1, is the race is right there downtown, right? Like, you're not on a bus for an hour and a half out to the countryside. Uh, you know, you hop on the metro, you get off at El Notre Dame, you walk a uh, half kilometer or so, and there you are right at the gates of the circuit Gilles Villeneuve. So, yeah, I'm very much looking forward to getting back there. Buddy, I want to get to Austin at some point. Like yeah, I. think, so do you know, I. it looks so like a fantastic. Uh, experience on television is a great U S city. I mean, one of the most cultural U S cities, particularly one of the most cultural cities in the South of the United States, when you think of what they've got going on from a music and food point of view. And, and, and look, you know, if you were picking places to put you, uh, races in the U S you know, and this is the one thing that I might be a little bit, you know, concerned of concerned about going forward, uh, with F one you're in Miami, Austin, Vegas, Detroit has held Grand Prix, right? I mean, Detroit, needless to say, is, you know, central in the automobile industry. <laughs> you in Indianapolis in the past, right? And let's face it, you know, it is the heartbeat of North American um, racing is Indianapolis, Indiana. Once upon a time, there were Grand prix in Long Beach near Los Angeles. And that would have to be an intriguing market. And of course, once upon a time, Mark, we were talking about racing in New York City with right. the statue of... Liberty right. in the background. So, you know, now that they've got their appetite wet with these U.S. races, are there going to be more going forward? Are you going to go to other cities in the United States at the expense of other countries and other constituencies that would like to hold their own
0: races? As somebody in a country who's seen many of our sports franchises depart for southern pastures, and I am still aching for the return of my Vancouver Grizzlies, I often hesitate to feel good about the long term kind of the long-term health of the Canadian Grand Prix. The fan support is there, but I fear that ultimately, unless they can lock that down to a long-term contract, what's to say a big US city or promoter doesn't come in and say, hey, Bell Media is paying you $30 million a year. Actually, I'll look it up right now. So Bell's paying $30 million a year. What's to say a US promoter says, hey, we'll pay you 50 and then it puts Bell in a position to match, right? Now,
2: the one thing we got going for us is that Montreal routinely attracts that huge 100, 120,000 person and crowd on race a. And of course, the other thing you got going for you, if you're a fan and want to keep the Canadian Grand Prix is, I mean, Bell Canada Enterprise is one of the biggest, oldest, richest companies in this country. It's media division subsidiary. Uh, Bell Media has a huge stake in that race, needless to say, because it goes on its, its all sports channel, TSN. So yeah, I hope it's many more years of going to a Canadian Grand Prix in Montreal. I am absolutely curious and want to get down to either Miami or Vegas, two cities that I've made uh, vacation destinations many a time in my life, or Austin at some point uh, going forward. I just wonder, again, I just wonder how much, you know, how long can F1 sort of ignore its base uh, in Europe, in France, and Germany? Uh, I would have to think, you will get some people organizing there looking for a return of F1 in both those countries in the near future.
0: Says Red Bull team principal Christian Horner. When you talk about 24 weekends out of 52 in a year, it does feel too much, he said to Sky TV. But then when you look at the venues that are coming in, you think, okay, I definitely go an extra weekend for Vegas. If South Africa was on the calendar, I definitely do an extra weekend as well. China might be coming back. It's such an important market and I think they're working hard to make the weekend shorter and operational more operationally more bearable for the teams and the traveling staff. It will need that combination, but 24 races he says is right on the limit of what's possible. For Formula One. And again, from Formula One's perspective, the more races, the better. And the teams want more races because ultimately the revenue that's earned through the championship is split between the Formula One commercial rights body and the teams. And the teams split it up largely through the constructor standings. So everyone's motivated for more races and more races also means more TV revenue. So when you go knocking on the door at TSN, you say, I've got 24 races to offer you instead of 17. And then that's more compelling and it can help you negotiate some more TV revenue. Revenue dollars as well. All of that said, I think it's time to take a quick break and come back and pivot to another story because I want to talk to you a little bit about longstanding Formula One stalwart Fernando Alonso. We're going to take a quick break, pay some of those proverbial bills, and we'll be right back. Welcome back to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One. My name is Mark Hamilton. Not joining me today, my friend, my colleague, my coworker, my frenemy, Mr. Mark Daly, but that's good because I've got an even better co-host. Joining me once again oh is Matt Sakaris of Sakaris & Price out of Vancouver, BC. Matt, thanks again for joining us today. Before the break, we were talking about the 2023 calendar. I think it was some great conversation, but I want to talk to you a little bit about Fernando Alonso's shock and Formula One, the British press. They always use the word shock. Fernando Alonso's shock switch to Aston Martin. So reportedly, and I say reportedly, but Otmar Snafnauer has actually said this out loud his team, Alpine, Fernando Alonso's current team did not know that he was even negotiating with Aston Martin until Aston Martin released a press statement saying they had signed him for the upcoming season. What are your initial thoughts or what were your initial thoughts on Fernando ditching Alpine to go to Aston Martin?
2: Well, I think Fernando is out of Fs to give. Uh, he's deep in his, <laughs> I mean, he's deep in his career and I think Fernando Alonso is going to do Fernando Alonso. Um, I also think he's probably quite happy to have a seat for next year, given his age uh, and the results in the Alpine. Um, look, it is uh, it is a political backroom business, right? The shuffle for chairs. You don't want to be left without a chair like musical chairs. So um, look, I, as a titan of the sport, I'm glad to see that Fernando will be carrying on to yet another team. Uh, as you know, I root for Aston Martin, Mark, because they're the Canadian owned team with Lance Stroll and of course, or with well, Lawrence Stroll and of course, Lance uh, in one of the cockpits. And I would have to think that Lance's seat is still safe, but you tell me it's been a season <laughs> for Lance. Uh, and I know Sebastian is moving on. And so that opens, opens up a seat for them. I would have to think watching Aston Martin this year that the chairman is hungry for a little of professionalism in the cockpit. And that's not a slight on Vettel, but, you know, for me, if you're already know you're retired as a race car driver, that probably affects you on track, right? Are you really going to, you know, go for every last move? Are you really going to push the limits that you did as a younger driver? If you know you're uh, driving into the sunset at the end of the calendar, you know, I hearken the great, uh, Seen in the movie Rush there with Daniel Bruhl as Nicky Lauda after having a a child (laughs) saying, I have something to lose now. Right. So, you know, I think Fernando can bring that sort of professionalism. I suspect he can work well with some of the, the team, the engineers and the mechanics in terms of car setup and all that, but you're the expert there. You tell me, I just hope Aston Martin becomes a, you know, significance on the grid. Um, they were making reasonable progress after Lawrence Stroll had bought Force India. Um, they were looking, it was Force India, right? If I'm not mistaken. Force India. Absolutely. Yeah. Like, you know, it looked like it was going in the right direction. They had the rebrand, a classic traditional name and Aston Martin, the color is absolutely magnificent. Uh, I want my next car in that color. Um, but boy, it's been a hideous year on track for them. I mean, they're just, absolutely. I mean, they're turtles. Uh, it's a green car that looks like a turtle uh, going around the track. And I mean, Lance just, you know, you want to support him so much as a Canadian, but there just hasn't been a lot of progress since that surprise podium in, uh, was Baku, if I'm not mistaken, right, uh, several years ago. Uh, would have liked to have seen a whole lot more progress from the team and from Lance his, himself. If Fernando can help that next year, so be it. I'm all for it.
0: I want to circle back to Lance in a couple of minutes, but I think this is always it's always the most interesting part of Formula One for me. And I pulled back the curtain and share this with our listeners a couple of times. There's two things that drive really great numbers for our podcast one is Ferrari winning a race. If Ferrari wins a race, our numbers are sky high. It doesn't matter if Lewis wins, it doesn't matter if Max wins. If Ferrari wins, our numbers are up 30%. The other thing, the other thing that really drives ratings for us is the talk of silly season, which is kind of like NBA free agency. Like, my interest in the NBA peaks around the NBA finals into free agency and the draft, and then it drops <laughs> off until the next <laughs> spring. Like, that is, that is me as an NBA fan. But formula one is the same way that nothing gets us more clicks and downloads than this talk of silly season. And one of the things I have to constantly, and I like to do it because it's really interesting talk to our North American listeners about is formula one is so different than North American team sports. Like whether they have a salary cap or not, major league baseball, the NHL, the NBA, the NFL, they have collective bargaining agreements, and there are Fierce fines for tampering. You do not talk to another team. You do not look at another team if you are under contract. You have to be a free agency at midnight when your contract expires. Talk away. Formula One is crazy. Like, let's go back to 2005. So, at the end of 2005, uh, Mr. Fernando Alonso makes the decision that he's going to leave for McLaren in 2007. He drives the entire 2006 season for Renault, wins them a championship while he's under contract for McLaren, which is just mind boggling.
2: I remember that. Yeah. And um, Mark, you've forgotten another layer of confusion here. And one that I still don't necessarily get from an ethical point of view. Toto Wolf is their manager for God's sake. He manages all these guys, despite running the Mercedes team. Like, When I did have new uh, fans and friends of mine watching Drive to Survive come to me and go, wait a second, Total Wolf acts as their manager, even though he runs a rival team? And I'm like, yeah. And they're like, how does that figure? And I'm like, I really don't know, actually. Uh, It's just a small cadre of people who seem to get together and sort out uh, who's who's in those chairs. So... Yeah, um, I I, I must say, uh, there was a part of me that was surprised that Fernando did want to go to another team. I sort of wondered, okay, has he had enough of being sort of a mid-pack driver after you've had that much success? But, you know, I suspect that there's nothing quite like the experience of driving a Formula One car. And I don't dispute for a second that there are some people who will do it until someone comes to take them physically away from the cockpit and even then may try and fight them off. And, you know, Fernando strikes me as the type of guy who, if his last breath were in a Formula One cockpit, he'd be okay with that.
0: On that that note of, and I'm going to use the word incestuous, knowing how How problematic it could be. But on that note of how incestuous Formula One can be, one of my friends sent me a message a couple of months ago. She's like, Mark, you understand. This is when Jean Todd was still the president of the FIA. Like, Mark, you know the president of the FIA, the body that's responsible for governing and officiating Formula One. His son is the manager of Formula One drivers, including Charles Leclerc. And it's just one of those facepalm moments. Like, Formula One, like, you are such a messy, messy beast. But on on the note of Fernando Alonso, uh, I had this thought that when he came back to Formula 1, so he had an unceremonious exit with McLaren a couple of years ago, that relationship was loudly and verbally damaged. We could hear it over the radio during races. I thought at that point... He had burned all of his bridges in Formula One and given his age, he was never going to come back. And when Alpine Renault made the decision to bring him back that last year, the impression that I got of Fernando was this is a guy who now recognizes after a couple of years out of the sport how lucky he is to be in Formula One and that he really respects the fact that this team, Renault, was willing to give a 40-year-old driver kind of a fourth or fifth champion or chance in the sport. And then the fallout from the last couple of weeks just kind of reinforced exactly what you said. Fernando is going to be Fernando. And the reported terms of the deal are this. It is a three-year deal, but it's effectively a one plus one plus one. So he can opt into an additional year for three consecutive years. So he's got three years of guaranteed money. The team doesn't have an option. He's also going to be paid reportedly. Lawrence Stroll is going to tee up $20 million a year. So the terms reportedly at Alpine were going to be one With a one year driver or one year team option in the range of five to $10 million. So, as a 41 year old driver, if a team's offering me three years of guaranteed money at $20 million a year, you take that deal every time, right? Yeah, for sure. I mean, and look, there's only 20 of these
2: seats in the world, right? It is a very limited number of seats, and it's typically a very limited number of years you get to take up. One of those seats. So, you know, what Fernando has done over the course of his illustrious career, um, that he's still doing it here into his forties is astonishing. Most people of that age have lost their nerve a little bit. Right. Um, who, and especially when you've got the sort of wealth that he's been able to accumulate over his years. So, uh, look, I love the fact that he's back. Frankly, I'd like to hear more Fernando Alonso radio on the uh, Sky broadcast, because to me, he's one of the most entertaining guys, win, lose, or draw. And, you know, like we said, he's out of F's to give, you know. Like, so you can hear all sorts of things on the Fernando Alonso radio.
0: Before we move on to the next topic, uh, one of the th- things that I thought was really interesting or one of the tidbits or pieces of fallout that emerged in the days after he signed his deal with Aston Martin was that uh, Renault, Alpine Renault and Otmar were trying to get a hold of him. And apparently he or a part of his camp had told the Alpine team, you might not be able to get a hold of him because he's in the remote Greek islands. Immediately after signing the contract with Aston Martin, it was revealed by his own social media that he was in Spain, well within cell phone range, he was just ghosting his Formula team, who he now has to complete a championship for. He still needs to race nine more races for them.
2: Well, uh, hey, um, sure. But did Otmar not leave Aston Martin? Like, you know, Otmar, he's moved across the aisle too, right? Like, so think about his fair play, Otmar.
0: And, And not only that, but don't forget Otmar and Lawrence Stroll signed... Sergio Perez to a three-year deal for 2020, 2021, and 22, midway through 2019, and by halfway through the 2020 championship, the first year of his new three-year deal, they were working to buy him out of that deal. So loyalty is not something that is well-distributed in the world of sport for Formula One, is a no, competitive no. business.
2: absolutely, absolutely. So, I want to jump
0: on to another topic here. And I think we had a couple of lined up, but in the spirit of time and in the interest of your time, I wanted to jump into a quick mid-season review. So we're a little over halfway through the championship. As we speak, we're in the midsummer break, but I wanted to get your perspective really on three different teams. So Ferrari, the team that probably should be leading the championships, Red Bull, the team that deservedly is leading the championships, and Mercedes, a team that really sputtered out of the gate but all of a sudden is making really great progress. Maybe start with Ferrari and just share your thoughts on them so far this year. Well,
2: I, I can remember, I think you did a Twitter spaces after the qualifying of race one, uh, way back in March, uh, Mark. And I remember listening to that and, you know, w- um, the, you know, the early jump to conclusions, you know, way ahead of ourselves over our skis conclusion was for Ferrari, Ferrari's back. Um, of course, they were fantastic that opening weekend. Um, there was a lot to suggest that Ferrari being the one team on the grid that is a race team in its DNA, right? Like yeah. Red Bull Point, market. you know, Mercedes is an auto manufacturer, Ferrari is a racing team that happens to sell very expensive streetcars uh and, and swag. Um Uh, You know, So with the constraints and the new regulations, I thought for a moment there, okay, this all plays into Ferrari's hands. They have two terrific young drivers, and if they are the best car or close to the best car, we could see those prancing horses atop podiums and the Tifosi celebrating all across this big world of ours because, as you have already noted, your ratings go up when Ferrari wins. The Tifosi walk among us. Um, Let's face it, Charles Leclerc is is paying his dumb tax here, right? He is making the mistakes that are keeping him from being a more viable contender for the driver's standings. There have been way too many points left out on track by Charles personally, combined with all the strategy gaffes that are going on at Ferrari. And quite frankly, it's a little bit frustrating, Mark, because look, I'm not sure anybody expected we would see the sort of fireworks right down to the last race that we saw last year between Lewis and Max and between um, between Red Bull and Mercedes. But I was hoping it would be a little bit more competitive by the summer break than where we sit right now. Now, the flip side of that is Max is entirely at the top of his game. Um, Max Verstappen right now um, is, you know, if not as good better than Lewis was at his peak. And Michael Schumacher was at his peak, just the way that Max is making it look so easy and effortless, effortless these days. And yes, he's getting some help from some of the other teams, but when another team makes a mistake, they pounce on it, Mark, they're given no quarter. If you give them an opportunity, a sliver of daylight, they're putting their nose in there and they're taking the position for, uh, for, from you. So, you know, my hat's off to the Red Bull team and the way that Verstappen is going right now uh, because he's he's head and shoulders above Sergio, too. I mean, he is absolutely a maestro in the cockpit, and I think we're seeing him at his absolute pinnacle right now. Um, as for Mercedes, I'm glad to see they're making progress. Uh, I love the fact that George Russell is getting what he's getting out of the car. I'm a nostalgist, so I would love to see Lewis climb atop a podium and get a little bit more competitive in the races that are yet to come. And I think he will. I'm glad to hear they are making progress on the porpoising issues because it was so difficult to watch that onboard shot of the Mercedes earlier this year and shout out to you uh, for all your listeners should know. Hamilton calls me before the season. Wait, <laughs> you remember this Mark? Yes. A few yes. Weeks before the season. And he says, Matt, I just want to let you know. The grid will be dominated. The paddock will be dominated with talk of porpoising coming up in a few weeks. And here's what porpoising is. And he gave me the best, most layman's terms uh, definition of porpoising and why it happens. And Mark, I'll have you know, I have quoted you and I have used you (laughs) and your comments on porpoising from even before the season. Um, So, yeah, I mean, like I, I, I have hopes for Mercedes to be more competitive in the second half. But you know, I, I have a feeling we're we're uh, we're marching to a couple of coronations here, uh, both in the constructors and in the drivers championships.
0: My math, my math tells me, Matt, that we probably won't even get to Austin before these championships are going to be wrapped up. It's going to hurry, happen in a hurry. Max is up by 80 points. At this point, Charles Leclerc effectively has to win every remaining race and hope that Max DNFs a couple of times. That It's not mathematically decided, but practically it's it's done. And- and well, and especially because like Red Bull does not have
2: a lot of reliability issues. And Max is just so intelligent as a driver now. Like he's, you know, he's not going to stick his nose in there and get himself, uh, and get himself knocked out of the race, you know, trying to make a pass for sixth or seventh. He's going to take his points and just move on to the next race. So, you know, he has that luxury and, and more importantly, you know, he's got that maturity now, right? Like, you know, the young Max was a go for broke type of guy. It sort of reminded me of young Villeneuve and young Vettel and, you know, a bunch of the superstars in this sport who took. Several years as youngsters to basically be broken like horses, understand there's a way that you go about winning a championship that is different than your pure race instinct. And, you know, Max right now hits the, has hit the perfect balance of being a racer and being racy and gambling and going for it, but also being wise to the table. Also being wise to understand what's at stake and what it takes to win a drivers and constructors championship.
0: For many years, people have always liked to draw a comparison between Max and his teammate. And the commonly held belief is that the gap between the two of them was always because, and I'm going to quote here, I'm going to do that kind of fingers thing with my fingers in the air, the quote thing, the car was designed for Max and that's why his teammate was always so far behind the pace I don't believe that anymore. Like, I came to the recent realization that it has nothing to do with the car being designed for Max. It's just. Max is that much better than everyone he has ever been paired with. He is absolutely at the top of the game. And when you look at last year, and I'm glad you touched on this last year's championship for everyone listening at home was an anomaly. The championship never goes down to the final lap of the final race of a 22 race championship. That well, was an rarely, anomaly. We
2: we, we've seen it in the past. Rarely. Uh, Rare, yeah, so rarely. So, uh, rarely. Well, but, but yeah, I mean, like, let's face it. Like, you know, Max Verstappen was, born to do this. Uh, and of course, you know, there's the racing DNA there of his father who, who, and I do remember his father filling out the field years ago. Um, and and, you know, frankly, to me, that's only motivated Max even further, but you know, the moment he got into a cockpit years ago, I mean, it reminded me like Vettel and Hamilton and Michael Schumacher and, and, and Jacques Villeneuve. Like, you just knew there was something special about this guy. You just knew that there was something that distinguished him from other drivers on the grid. And, you know, he's realized his destiny here. Um, We both have our issues with the way he won his championship last year. I'm not going to sit here and say that, you know, it deserves an asterisk or a caveat in the official record books or anything like that. But in my mind's eye, I did and I do and I did want to see – Max Verstappen win a, win a championship that is devoid of controversy, to win it as a front runner, as Lewis did, as Michael Schumacher did in some of the greats, and I think we're seeing that this year, and Mark, we may be seeing several of these, like we could be in another era of Hamilton and Schumacher where everybody else is racing for second place.
0: I completely agree, and I'm often criticized for being too critical of Max, but I feel the exact same way, that if if I'm a Formula One fan, I don't want to see... His one potential championship, the biggest achievement of his life, shrouded in clouds because of the way that championship was, was decided. The fact that he's going to win a championship this year and just run away with it will only renew that sense of entitlement for having won last year's championship. And again, the outcome was horrible. We don't need to relitigate that. But ultimately, this is an incredibly well-deserved championship. And like you said, probably one of many to come.
2: Yeah, and it'll validate him, right? Like, it will validate him in the eyes of even the harshest critic of the way he won it last year. Because I would have to imagine there are, you know, thousands if not millions of Lewis Hamilton and Mercedes fans who don't want to recognize last year's championship because of the way it went down in the final laps. Well, he is leaving no doubt here. You know, we all have to sit there and bow before his greatness and understand this is the best race car driver in the world
0: the the pressure that both he and Lewis felt last year was something that only the greatest of all time could, could sustain and absorb and actually use as fuel to propel them forward. The fact that given how far he was behind in the championship, that Lewis could run off that series of successive wins in Qatar and Saudi and Brazil to close into a tie with Max in the final Grand Prix. And the fact that Max could be Losing that race with a handful of laps left, but be given a sliver of an opportunity and to take that championship, it speaks volumes about both of them as being all time greats. And I know Max has only got the one chip he's going to have two this year. There's no reason to think that in 23, 24, 25, when we're running under the exact same regulations that we are today, that he can't win at least one more and be kind of crowned as as part of that Mount Rushmore of all-time greats. My friend, I promise I wouldn't keep you beyond 45 minutes. We're well beyond that. Before I let you go, couple of predictions. What is your what is your prediction for, I'm not even going to ask you for the championship, but what is your prediction for a surprise that we might see in the back half of the season, given everything that's going on what kind of surprises might you expect to see in the back half of the season? I'm kind of putting you on the spot here.
2: You sure are. I, I wish you'd give me a heads up on that one. Um look, um we haven't yet seen a big surprise winner of a race this year. Ah, no, great one. Right. We haven't seen an Esteban Ocon in uh, Hungary. We haven't seen a Pierre Gasly uh at Imola. So Let's say somewhere down the road here, and I, hey, it may be Imola again. Maybe it's Spa. Maybe it's Mexico. Uh, I think we're going to see a, a surprise winner here yet. Typically, you get one per year, right? right. Mark, where everything right. goes crazy and there's weather, or, you know, top guys crash out on the first lap, or there's bad pit stops, mechanical issues, where all of a sudden somebody who had no expectation of winning the Grand Prix has a chance to win the grand prix in the final lap. So, uh, I'll say we still get one of those before this season before this season is out and uh wouldn't it be poetic if it was Sebastian Vettel in his final year, right? The four-time world champion, someone who knows the sport and its history inside out, someone who can quote chapter and verse the rule book from the cockpit while doing three hundred and twenty kilometers an hour to his team, you know. I saw so and so cross a line. He's not allowed to cross that line. Um so yeah, if if I had to be put on the spot, a surprise winner of a Grand Prix and a Sebastian Battle one last time with Feeling.
0: I think it is actually in the sporting regulations that we have to have one surprise winner, one surprise podium a year, and we're due for both. Nobody outside of the top seven has scored a podium this year, but I think that would be a great way to celebrate... Uh, Sebastian Vettel's career was with a final podium with an underperforming team in the back half of his final season in the championship before he goes off to pursue some of the things that are so important to him in life. Matt, my friend, I cannot thank you enough for joining us. I know you've had an incredibly busy day. You've been on the set recording the entire time. Thank you once again. We hope to speak to you again in the future. For everybody listening at home, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we appreciate it as always. And like I said, we've got a bunch of great podcasts coming up for you. Uh, if you want to follow us on Twitter at f one pod you know, you know, we appreciate the follow and we make an effort to reach out to everyone that does follow us. And again, if you have the opportunity to give us a rating on Spotify and a rating and review on Apple, we greatly, greatly appreciate it. We review, or sorry, we review, we read, every single review that we get and we appreciate them all. So thank you once again. Once again, thanks for joining us. Have a great weekend. We'll speak to everyone soon. Bye.